Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Well, we are studying through the book of Daniel verse by verse. Uh, learning from Daniel, great insights not only on the person of Daniel, but on the prophecies of Daniel. So if you would, take your Bibles and open them to Revelation chapter 13. As we're pausing in this section, we just finished chapter 8 in Daniel, and we were introduced in chapter 7 and 8 to a, a character that we know as the Antichrist. We know he's a man, except that we don't know his exact name, but we know he's a man. And in our last study, we covered quite a bit of territory looking at this interesting character. He is real. He's predicted. We know him to be Satan's false messiah. He's an imitation of Jesus himself. And remember, we learned that the prefix anti has two meanings. It means in place of and against. And this world leader who will come on the scene in the last seven years of world history that the Bible declares in the New Testament as the Great Tribulation Period. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. This new world order will be ushered in by him. It will include a one-world government, a one-world religious system, a one-world monetary system, which you may be familiar with whenever the term Mark of the Beast is mentioned. The mark of the beast is, a, is while it is, it is required to participate in the uh, financial system, it's a spiritual decision. It will be a spiritual decision to side with the Antichrist. And although we don't know his exact name, throughout the Bible there's about 50 different titles that are given to the Antichrist, like the son of perdition. He's known as the wicked one, as the seed of the serpent. And interestingly enough, it's from John himself that we learn the term Antichrist. We looked at it last time. I'll read it to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Dear children, the last hour is here, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. So he refers to the one as capital A Antichrist, and yet there are many operating in a spirit of being against Jesus Christ, or trying to replace Jesus Christ with false teachings and false religions. And he says, from this we know that the last hour has come. And so the last time we were together, we studied the Antichrist's appearance, we studied his authority, and we studied his amazement. And so today we want to go into his adoration. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 13 by way of review. This is Revelation chapter 13. As then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, it had seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Verse 3. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. 
And the whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power. And they also worshipped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? And the beast there was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. And he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. And that is those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast. They are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. So let's look at his adoration in verse 4 and verse 8. Come back with verse 4 for a moment. It says that they worshipped the dragon. They gave him the adoration that belongs only to God. They worshipped the dragon that we know already is the devil. There There is true devil worship during the last seven years of human history for giving the beast such power. And they worshipped the beast. We know as the Antichrist saying, who is this, who is great as the beast? They exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? And then jump at verse 8. It says, all the people who belong to this world worshipped the beast. The Antichrist was so convincing that those that belong to this world, which would refer to those that have rejected God, rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they take that worship, you know, because your desire to worship, you will worship someone in something. If you choose to reject Jesus Christ, that desire to worship will be directed somewhere else. And throughout the life of the dragon, he receives worship. People are aligned with the devil. And that's what he's wanted all along. Would you turn back to Isaiah for a moment? In Isaiah chapter 14, worship as God is what he's desired all along. This is something that he's wanted, and it's the very thing that got him kicked out of heaven. Notice with me in Isaiah chapter 14, and pick up there in verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one, verse 17, who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? Is this the king, notice little k, is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? You see, the devil, this perfect angel, was first in heaven under God. Some believe that he was the leader of worship or in charge of the angels and their adoration of God. 
But he didn't like not being God. And we gain insight in Isaiah 14 that his pride rose up within him and caused a great rebellion. It's always been the desire of the dragon to be on top. It's always been the desire of the dragon to receive that focused worship and to be adored. And ever since he was kicked out of heaven, he's wanted to climb the ladder and be first in the hearts of my, in the mind, in, first in the hearts and the minds of men. He he's wants that attention. He, devil worship is alive and well, but it's not some fringe element just to a few, you know, a few people on the side that dress differently and put different makeup on. Devil worship can be said to be the antithesis of rejecting God, the exact opposite of following God. The antithesis of following God is the rejection of God. And the Bible says, describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air, the, the ruler of this age. And so much that's going on in the world today has its roots in the demonic. How, how the world system, as we learned last time, that threefold enemy that we have as believers. We face the, the perils of the world system that we're in, that we live in. We face the perils and the attacks of our flesh and our humanity and the weakness of our flesh. And we face the perils of the devil himself. Now, I don't really think that I've ever faced the devil head on. I don't, I don't think that I've faced the devil head on as if he shows up to tempt me all the time. I think that his time is spent with men and women that have far more influence to, that he would take down and would influence far more people. But I'll tell you what, I've dealt with the demonic before. Have you? Anybody felt a demonic attack on your life and just like an overwhelming sense of evil and evil's presence? I've certainly felt that and experienced that. And ever since the devil was kicked out of heaven, he's wanted that place of prominence. And so the people's amazement here and the people's adoration is what he's wanted. In fact, there are many that believe that the Antichrist himself will be the devil incarnate on the earth, which is an interesting thing to consider, that he'll be the devil in human flesh. The devil is not satisfied with attention. He wants worship. He wants to displace Jesus Christ and be back first in line. And for a time period, he succeeds in many ways. Would you turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He wants to displace Jesus. He wants to be first in line. Pick up with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let's clarify some things about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we'll be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord had already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. We have another description of what will happen through the, through the deception of the Antichrist here in 2 Thessalonians. He says, verse 5, don't you guys remember that I told you all about this when I was with you? 
And you know what is holding him back, for he can only be revealed when this time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly and will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. Verse 9. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. We looked at that a little bit last time because of that deadly wound. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. So lies surround the Antichrist, and many people will believe his lies. But I don't believe that those lies are like a bunch of different lies, but I believe they're rooted in a lie. Now, we already know Jesus declared straight up that the devil's a liar. He doesn't tell the truth. He's a liar. And he has been, Jesus said, from the beginning. What does the devil lie about? He lies to people about God. And gets people confused about the character, the nature, the care, the concern of God. So much of the Bible in its revelation of the character of God has everything to do with getting our eyes centered and focused on the reality of who God is no matter how we feel. Because the circumstances in life can really mess with our feelings. And if we're not careful, our perceptions and feelings will be that barrier and we'll start to project them upon. I was just reading Pastor Chuck Smith in his book on faith, entitled Faith. I was just reading this section where he said, and I'll summarize it. He talked about how when we face these major limitations in our lives, it's very easy for us to project those limitations upon God. And then we're kind of feeling like, man, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have any, I have no power. I have no help. And then we look up to God and we go, well, you know what? If I can't do it, I'm not sure if God can do it. And we begin to project our own human limitations upon the limitless God. And so the lies that the devil tells us, they're really centered about, around who God is. His grace and his mercy and his character. But you know, God, the devil also inspires lies about ourselves. Uh, really stirring up pride perhaps in our lives or thinking we're more important than we should be or allowing that, that situation where, you know, one of the biggest lies I see among believers is carrying this weight of condemnation around from past sins. When the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ, but we believe the lie. Maybe someone's withholding forgiveness from you right now and you're just living with that and, and you're kind of taking that as if, well, you know, if I don't experience forgiveness in the human realm, then God must not forgive me either. But the Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, those that are called according, those that love him. He lies to us about God. He lies to us about ourselves. He lies to us about our origin. I mean, isn't the biggest theory today about the origin of man just the biggest nonsensical lie that you can think of? And, and, and it just changes from year to year. It changes from textbook to textbook. It, it, no, don't worry, You're, you didn't come from a creator God who is made in God's image and accountable to God. You started in a pile of doo-doo, you know, or whatever. You started in a mud thing. Some big bang happened somewhere at some time and how many years ago and... No, you and I were created in the image of God. We are accountable to God. 
We, we are accountable to his care and concern. A real God sent a real Savior to deal with the real sin in your life and mine, to rescue us and free us and forgive us. But the devil loves to inspire lies about where we've come from. And sometimes it starts in our own families. Maybe we don't buy into the idea of evolution, but it's our own families. And we all grew up, you know, this whole um, idea of dysfunctional families. Um, and that's a big deal today. And, and I know some of you, when you hear that word, you go, well, Ed, you're describing my family. But, but it's not just your family. You realize that, right? Because of sin, we all grew up in a dysfunctional family. And by the way, the family that you're raising right now, that's dysfunctional too. We haven't tasted the fullness of God's perfection yet. We're growing and being, we're being discipled. And some of you might be unconvinced. Maybe parents, I'd say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not. My family's not dysfunctional like the one I grew up in. And to that we say, amen. But have you ever failed your kids? Yeah. Was that functional or dysfunctional? Like sin is in our home. Sin is in our parenting. Sin is in our marriage. But the lie is, is that your family is so bad that you're going to be damaged for life, that there's no hope for you, that there's no possibility to change, that you'll be under the weight of the way you were raised or the way you thought. You know, some of you grew up going, I will never be like my mom. And guess who you, rep who you reflect at times? Your mom or your dad. That's how you were raised. And then you get that glimpse of it, and it's just overwhelming, and you start to believe the lie. And begin to think, well, maybe I am just like my mom. No, you're not. You're like you are. And God's in work in your heart and in your mind. You're, the Bible says that that's the work of God's sanctification. That you're being changed from glory to glory and strength to strength. That, that the goal for you and me is not to be like someone we admire. The goal for you and me is we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ very much into his image. So what? He tells us lies all the time about our origins, where we come from. He, he tells us lies that you'll never be any good. You'll never make it. You'll never, you'll never, never, never. No. My Bible says that what's impossible with man is possible with God. So whatever God has told me I'm never, I know that if it's his will, he'll get me there. That there is a way. God makes a way where there is no way. And he's able to get me, but we believe the lies and we stunt our spiritual growth and we stay stuck. Another lie is that our enemies are people. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says they wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against power, principalities and powers. That it's a spiritual battle that can only be won with spiritual weapons. That'll be the next time we're in Daniel because the spiritual weapon that Daniel used the most, prayer. You'll find an example in Daniel's life in the next chapter of a man that was committed to two things, prayer and the word of God. Read ahead. You'll see that he was inspired and stirred by the writings of Jeremiah. Like, like that affected him. And it enlivened his prayer life. I mean, we, there's all sorts of lies that, that we face, but there's only one lie at the root of it all. There's a lot of lies swirling around our lives, but there's only one lie, and that is that there is no one true God. That's the lie. I mean, if you believe that there is no God, the Bible not only says that you're foolish, the fool said in his heart there is no God. That's a foolish thing to believe, but it will skew every other decision you make. And you go, Ed, but, but Ed, we're believers. We're repenting of our sins. We follow Jesus. There's no way I believe that lie. Well, at times, I'm sure there is. Every time you take things into your own hands, 
you displace God in your life for that season. Anytime you begin to doubt that God is sovereign and working all things together, like that's the lie. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me in Revelation 13, 2 Thess- or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that lies and deception are surrounding the end times, especially the coming of the Antichrist. Come back with me to verse 4 in chapter 13, where the question is asked, who is as great as the beast? Now, this, these are the people living on the earth at the time. Who's like the beast? Who is able to fight against him? It, it sounds familiar. You Bible students, these phrases sound familiar of the worship that God receives from his people. You can just jot them down. I'll read them to you. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Psalm 35, 10. Lord, who can compare with you? Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? And notice what they say to the Antichrist. Who is as great as the beast? Who is able to fight against him? He's worshipped. And Daniel, he says something interesting about this man. Again, let me read it to you. Jot it down. We're not there yet in our study. But in Daniel chapter 11, in verse 37, it speaks of the Antichrist. Daniel says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Daniel wrote that hundreds of years before Revelation was written. And they go together perfectly. His adoration. Antichrist will be worshipped. Let's look at the next one in verse 5. His, the accusations or the blasphemies that come from the beast. Then the beast was allowed to speak, verse 5, great blasphemies against God. And he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. Just mark that, 42 months. It's an important number, but it also it's an important truth. And we don't want to just bypass it. But he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So you, can you get the scene of what's happening on the earth at this time? You've got the, those that dwell on the earth, those that have rejected God, those that are not worshiping Jesus Christ as Messiah, are worshiping the beast that is literally blaspheming the one true God. That's how displaced things are. I don't think we need to wait for the great tribulation period to see the many antichrists, little a, that are on the earth today. The deception that's running rampant. Those that might be openly blaspheming God and yet receiving the adoration of man. Oh, perhaps not worship, in the sense of worship in a church setting, but adoration, money, allowing to be influenced by them, all little antichrists, little A's. And during the last half of the great tribulation period, the antichrist's mouth suddenly changes and his venom is spewed out against God in blasphemy. His true colors now are revealed. The antichrist will be filled with antichrist words and he blasphemes God's name, God's temple, God's tabernacle, God's followers. Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me 
first. Now take note of verse 5 for a moment. All he gets is 42 months. He doesn't get 43 months. He doesn't get 51 months. He, he doesn't get 42. I mean, I mean, he doesn't get 51. He gets 42. And what that's telling us is there's an end point to the, he's, there's an end point to the blasphemies and the authority of the Antichrist. Let me quote to you a commentator. He said, The beast continues without restraint by God for a period of 42 months, the familiar three and a half years. The duration of the period shows that the beast has full reign for the first half of the final seven years and that during that whole time he's still under God's authority. And even as tough times come into your life, and this is what encouraged me about this, of whatever's going to happen in the future in the Great Tribulation, when I hear 42 months and I hear there's a beginning and an end, that there's a limitation, that no matter what you're facing in life, no matter what's coming your way, there's a beginning and there's an end. We don't often, you know, especially when the end takes forever, takes forever, takes like you're in the constant wave of, of trial. I know one of the things I learned in our, in our recent trial is, is how used to I was of facing trials with a predictable beginning, a sort of, you know, a, a middle time, but not very long, and then an end. So I could look back on series of trials in my life and say, well, I faced that one, and the Lord got me through. I faced that one, the Lord got me through. I faced that one. And that still happens many times in my life. I face something, I go through a short amount of time in the middle, and then the Lord reveals it, resolves it, and then it's, yes, I see your faithfulness, I see your faithfulness. But many of you have been in a place in life where you realize that you're in a trial that has a beginning. You can look back and go, oh, I know when it began. And then there's this middle time that seems like it's taken forever. And you're in the middle right now. It hasn't ended yet. And it's frustrated you or it's made you sad or it's turned you inward or it stirred up depression in you. And some of you are like, I don't think it's ever going to end. Listen, it's going to end. Because eventually, even if it doesn't end on earth, you're going to have your last breath on earth. You're going to wake up in the presence of the Lord. It's going to end. Now, I hope along with you that it ends here. I have a heavenly hope. I'm looking forward to the blessed hope, the soon return. I want and I would love for God to end trials in my life right now and not have this long ending, thus, I mean, excuse me, this long middle. But even if he doesn't, he remains faithful. And he has promised that every wrong will be made right. Every sickness will be healed. Everything will be taken care of. And when we're in the presence of the Lord, I was mentioning this on the radio today, when we're in the presence of the Lord, we will agree with God with his dealings with man on earth. There won't be any disagreement. You won't, you know, sometimes we kind of, we use this, uh, this il uh, illustration. I think I used it many years ago. I don't use it too much these days. We used to use this illustration. Well, you know, I've got this difficulty and I put it in a file. And uh, when I get to see, when I see God in heaven, I'm going to bring my file and I'm just going to ask him all these questions. You're not taking a file to heaven. And you're not going to have any questions because the Bible says that we're going to know even as we're known. And so there's going to be a transfer of knowledge and information that what God knows we'll know in the eternal state. And, and, and you know, the thing is this, and a brother shared this with me. He said, if you knew what God knew, you would do what God wants. Like if you had the full knowledge of what God knew, our behavior would change. But instead, God doesn't have us live that way, does he? he we don't live by full knowledge. We live by what? Faith. That's the year, isn't it? We live by faith. We don't live by full knowledge. And so here for 42 months, he's given authority 
but it's only 42 months. It seems like he's winning. It seems like you'll never get out of it. It seems like, it seems like, it seems like that all the things in our lives come down doesn't knock God off the throne. He's not shocked by what is happening in your life. He's not, oh, what happened? He's not, hey, Gabriel, what's going on down there? He knows. And everything in our lives as a believer in Jesus Christ have been father-filtered. He's allowed them, perhaps even sent some, so that we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've looked at his appearance, his authority, his amazement, his adoration, his accusations. The final thing we want to look at is his aggression. Come back with me in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. His aggression. It says, The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the people who belong to this world. Now, at this stage in the text, many people will ask, wait a minute, uh, I thought the church was raptured. How is it that he's coming against these people, God's holy people? Well, this is not a reference to the church. The church is a distinct entity. Remember, the seven-year Great Tribulation period is a period of time that God has reserved, as we'll see in Daniel 9, the 70th week of Daniel, the final seven years of world history, where God will then turn his attention to the Jewish people and fulfill his promises that are yet unfulfilled. And these God's holy people are not the church. They are those... Notice, they're described to us. They're waging war against God's holy people to conquer them. He was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. And these are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. So he makes war against the saints in the New King James and overcomes them. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. The Antichrist will come violently against anyone who worships the one true living God. Remember, the souls under the altar. Turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Notice in Revelation chapter 6, there's a group of people in the tribulation known as the tribulation saints. Those that turn their lives over to Jesus Christ, predominantly Jewish people, the children of Israel during the great tribulation period. And remember, there's a song of the saints that are crying out for vengeance in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. And notice what they're shouting. It says, they shouted to the Lord, their God, and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? How long? And Daniel predicts this. In Daniel chapter 7, we've read already and we learn in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25, it says that the Antichrist will defy the Most High, oppress the holy people of the Most High, He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws and they will be placed under his control for a time, times and a half a time, which is a reference to 42 months. But then the court will pass judgment. All his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. That phrase shall be given back in Revelation 
is a phrase that means to be delivered into the hands of a government or the idea of police arrest. Now it's interesting, is it not in the days in which we live that governments at the drop of a moment can issue what's known as martial law or what's known as being put under police or house arrest. You're living in a time literally right now because of a potential pandemic of a virus where entire cities and regions of millions of people are being shut down and you could say that they shall be given to the government and they're restricting their movement. That's a pretty powerful thing to witness. And here it will be okay for the Antichrist to persecute and kill those that call upon the name of Jesus. They will be martyred by the Antichrist. He will not put up with this. He desires to be worshipped and any other worship aside from him, they will be given unto his control. It will mark his ruling and dominion. Now, this is an important place, again, for those of you that are still uncertain about the rapture of the church and the timing of it, I want you to compare verse 7, and then we'll go back and I'll read to you Matthew chapter 16. So notice again, the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people, and what is the last phrase of that sentence? To conquer them. That's an important phrase. Because Jesus said something in Matthew chapter 16 that we share right at the base of the area, the cave that's known as the Gate of Hades in Caesarea Philippi. We take time when on our tour. We come up there. We sit there with it in the background. And that's the place where Jesus brought his disciples to him. And he asked them, who do men say that I am? And after they answer it, and, and Peter gives this amazing revelation, he says this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says, now I say to you, Peter, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And so there, I share that with you to show that there is a distinction between this group of people and the people that are known as you and I are today as the church. If you're taking notes, there are three distinct people on the planet Earth right now. There are those known that we would commonly refer to as the Jew. Secondly, there are those known as the Gentile, which would be anyone that's non-Jew, most of us in the room. And then thirdly, there's a group known as the church. And the church is made up of men and women that are saved from both Jew and Gentile. There's a new entity introduced in the Great Tribulation period, and these are known as the Tribulation Saints. Because I believe, and you can look them up on, on the app, you can just put the word rapture in the search bar and the studies will come up, that as you go through in the depth of looking at Jesus Christ's promise to return, we see in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell, or as it says here in the New Living, the powers of hell will not conquer the church. But now we're introduced to the beast that conquers God's holy people. Or in the New King James, it refers to the saints. And so these are not contradictions because this group of people are not church saints. They are tribulation saints. Those that come to faith after the rapture of the church. So notice, Jesus Christ is the real deal. And he brings an end to this. Notice in verse 9, anyone who has ears to hear, back in Revelation, 
should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone who is destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. And isn't that a word from God to us today? I was meditating on this verse earlier in the week where in Hebrews it says, you, have, you and I, we have need for endurance. We're just going to face things in our life that require endurance. That word in the Greek is hupomone. The idea is to bear up under the weight or the load of a circumstance, a situation. And the need that we have is not to get out of it, The need that we have is not even necessarily someone to come alongside and help us bear the burden. But there are some listening to me right now that your need is endurance. To learn to bear up under the weight of what you're in right now and what you're facing. And then you ask, but Ed, for how long? For how long? As long as the Lord allows it in our lives. We're to bear up under and make progress. I don't know, somewhere along the way, we either were taught this or we picked it up. Somewhere along the way, we thought the longer we walk with Jesus, the easier it would be. Anybody have that attitude at all? So so I think it should be easy by now. And you even beat yourself up and thinking you're a bad believer because you're facing so much trial. It's like, oh, it's all my fault. Well, there may be some, you know, consequences to decisions and such. But the closer you get in your walk with the Lord, the more opposition you face. Or as we learn from Paul, he said, this is so exciting, he told the Corinthians, a great and effective door has been opened for me. Yes, open doors. Don't we all want open doors? We want the doors God opens that no one can close. But he matched that with, but there are many adversaries. You know, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more I find that we have need for endurance. The more challenges we face. The more preparation that God has done in the previous time to prepare us. You know, all that we're going through right now is to prepare us for what's up ahead. God is allowing this time on earth to prepare us for heaven. But even before heaven, to prepare us for what tomorrow might bring. What he's going to allow next week. Jesus is the real deal. He's not the Antichrist. He's the real Savior, not the false Messiah. And Jesus loves you. And he died for you. Just coming back to that simplicity, would you turn back to Revelation chapter 2 for a second? In Revelation chapter 2, just as a reminder, as we're studying the Antichrist, we're thinking, well, you know, I don't expect to meet him, neither do I. I don't expect to see him. I I don't expect to see him face to face, but I'm I'm wondering if we're going to be able to see from the mezzanine, you know, from up top and be able to watch it all go down of how things are going to happen on the earth. I don't know how the end times are going to be and what kind of preparation is going to happen after the rapture or in the heavenly scene. However, I'm not in the heavenly scene right now. I'm on earth. God has me here. And God has a plan and a purpose for my life. And it's not unique to me, you know. God has you here. And there's a plan and a purpose that he's working out in your lives. But along the way, through difficulties and trials, we forget the simplicity of the gospel. That you and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were spiritually unaware of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. The Bible actually describes it being spiritually blinded, unable to see with our spiritual eyes, unable to discern and understand the things of God. Perhaps some of you were so unable to see, you were so blinded that you took a place of opposition against God. Saul of Tarsus did. It's one of the things that he writes that he wish it didn't happen. 
that he took a position against God, that he blasphemed and tried to destroy the church with his own hands. And yet God reached him. I mean, I would say Saul was very far from God. He was so far from God that not only did he take a position against God, he was deceived into believing that he was doing something for God. That's how far he was. And yet on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, what happens? God meets him, opens his eyes, and forever he's the saint that we'll remember as Paul the Apostle who wrote more than a third of the New Testament and whose life encourages so many of us today. That if a guy like Paul can be used by God, then so can I and so can you. And we forget the simplicity. We forget the the beautifulness, the, the sweetness of the love of God. We forget that he came to die in our place. We forget that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we remember through the elements of communion, we forget that he's the Lamb of God that takes away my sins. My sins. Not just the world, but me. He's the one that saved my soul. He's the one that rescued me from certain destruction. He's the one that gave me extended life physically. He's the one that entrusted me with the God. Like you can go on and on of the simplicity that gets lost in the complexity of life and the complexity of difficulties and circumstances. That's what happened to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. They were very active, doing many things. Notice in verse 1 it says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. Didn't we just mention we have need of endurance? So imagine getting a letter like this. Hey, everybody, everybody, I received a letter. It's from the Lord. It's a post-it note from Jesus. Listen up, listen up. I know your works. And you go, yes, Lord, you know my works. It's so good to hear. I've seen your hard work. Yes, you see the things I do. Yes, you've seen my endurance. Yes, I know you don't tolerate evil people, it says. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles and are not. You've discovered their lives. You've dedicated to sound doctrine. You love the word and you test everybody that comes. Notice verse three, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. These are all noble, glorious things, but they're also the prelude. They're also the prelude, theological exactness, the need for patient endurance, an onslaught of false doctrine, a a commitment to suffering. Some of you, this is a word from God for you. You have patiently suffered without quitting. What a great thing to hear from the Lord. You've patiently suffered. But the recipe The recipe in the life of the church in Ephesus led to verse 4. And we just need to have our eyes wide open to this. But I have this complaint against you. And all of a sudden, the wind, I don't know if you've ever been in a service here when there's been a hard thing or we've been laughing and then, you know, what they taught us when we were learning how to teach is if when you get the congregation laughing while their mouths are open, stuff a hard truth right down in there. See, you're laughing now, so it's stuff a hard truth right down in there. And, and, so, and, and then something said, and you can almost feel the wind leave the room. It's just a gasp. It's scandalous. How could he say that? You have a complaint against us? Wait a minute. Let me go back and rewind. Patiently endured. Doctrinally sound. We don't mess with false teachers. I've been patiently suffering, Lord. I've got all these things, and you have a complaint against me? 
And, you know, Jesus would let you ask that question. He's not going to reject that question. Ask it. You have a complaint against me? And you can hear the tenderness, but the sternness of Jesus say, yeah, I have this complaint against you. Notice what it says. It says, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Now, we haven't memorized it that way, have you? We haven't memorized it that way. That's why I like reading from the New Living Translation because it joggles our mind a little bit. We've learned this as you have left your first love. But listen, in a different translation, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. These are all great attributes to have as a church. I think we have them in our church. And I wonder how many have left their first love in all the activity, in all the difficulty. This isn't a statement of losing your salvation. It's a statement of losing the joy of your salvation. It's having a name that you're alive. It's having a name that you're alive, but denying the power thereof. And going through the religious motions because you know the words, you know the scriptures, you know the Christian vocabulary, and you just kind of go through the motions. But see, Jesus Christ is real. And he sent me today to remind us of his goodness and his faithfulness. To remind us that he loves you and that he's lived for you and died for you. And that he rose again the third day and is alive forevermore. To be on your side. Even in a strong word like this, you would want the Lord to tell you, hey, I see a lot of spiritual activity, but it's not because of love. It's not because of me anymore. And some of us have to go all the way back to when we were new believers, when everything about Jesus mattered to you. And you didn't know a lot about the Bible. You didn't know what, what scriptures to quote. You, you might have learned a hallelujah, praise the Lord really early on, but it took you a while to know the Bible, but you still love Jesus. You, you were faced with some trial, boom, you prayed right away. It's like, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to pray. And then you had that trust in the Lord. And, that, and then over time, you learn the system. He didn't do it on purpose. It's just the flesh. Remember the threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil? It's just our flesh gravitating toward that which is comfortable and easy. And as Christians, we kind of learn the process. And then along the way, the chastening hand of the Lord comes. A trial comes. A question comes. And it's a challenge just for us to say, no, Lord, I love you still. I love you. You love me. And he's the real seal. When we think of the Antichrist, let's not forget the real Christ. Messiah. Who we've spent years and years and years studying his life and times. Where whenever I get into a difficulty, even though right now I'm in the book of Leviticus for my uh, Bible reading. I'm reading chronologically this year. I'm reading in Leviticus, and I, I love the exactness. Sometimes I just finish with Leviticus and jump over to the Gospels to be reminded of the fulfillment of Leviticus in Jesus Christ, to watch it happen before my very eyes 
to see the love and joy of Jesus. Let's do that before we head out. John chapter 6. Let's look together at John chapter 6. I know we spent a lot of time looking at the Antichrist because there's a lot to be said in the Bible about this character, but there's more to be said about the real Christ. And we're to be good to master that. As much as you might be interested in all the nuances, who he is and where he comes from and what's the wound and all of those things that make for juicy uh, prophetic insights. But let's stick to what we know as we learn about Jesus. Notice in verse, John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I'll never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. And this is the will of God that I should not lose even one of all those he's given me, but that I should raise them up the last day. Isn't that great? Jesus is not gonna lose one of you. Not one of you. You might get lost, he's not losing you. He knows exactly where you are. You might wander off, you might get caught up, but Jesus says that he is gonna keep you to the end and raise you up on the last day. And for it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life and I will raise them up the last day. Now that's encouraging, is it not? He's going to raise us up the last But the people, it says, began to murmur in disagreement. You can receive the greatest of news and still murmur and complain. And let us not be that church. Let us leave here trusting in the one. You know how sometimes you go, how are you doing? And your response is really quick. I'm hanging in there. And it's a true representation, isn't it, of how you feel. Just hanging in there. But man, how scary that is, because what happens when you let go? Like if it's all dependent on you hanging in there, then man, when your grip becomes loose and it's all sweaty and like what's going to happen to you? Well, the good news is, is no matter what kind of grip you have on the Lord, you are firmly in his grip. You are firmly in his grip. I've told you this before, but when I used to walk the kids across the street when they were young, I would let them hold my pinky. I would let them hold my pinky. It was up to them to hold on to me. And if we were going across a busy street and, you know, I kind of sussed it. There's nobody there. We don't have to run across. They can hold on to my hand. It was there. They were going to learn how to trust dad and hold on to dad. And they would hold on to my pinky or one of my fingers. But I'll tell you what, in the moment of time that a danger sign came, I'd flip my hand around so fast and grab their wrist. They didn't have to worry about holding on to my pinky. It was for them to learn in times of safety, but in times of danger, I'd flip around so fast they'd be all tripping out before we went. They'd give me those big baby Yoda eyes. Because <laughs> I knew that I would save my kids before I saved myself. I would throw them into a place of safety and I'd take the danger. And if as a dad, I would do that for my kids, how much more your heavenly father would do that for you. So, Father, thank you for this study in the book of Revelation and the Antichrist. I know it gets a little exciting studying prophecy. And we get up in the times and seasons and some of the fulfillments. And, you know, even as we were thinking, I didn't plan it that way, but we were thinking today, God, about uh, or studying today about being under police arrest or house arrest. 
how the Antichrist, that's what the word is described for him, but we're living in a time right now as I speak where entire cities and provinces are being shut down uh, because of this virus, Lord. And once again, we pray for the families that have suffered loss because of this sickness, for the fear and anxiety that's gripping our world. Even in this room, there may be fear and anxiety surrounding what the news media is just always putting, always putting and in the reality of a, of a virus that we don't, can't see and can't do anything about. So I just pray you'd increase our faith about the things that we can't see and can't do anything about. That our, for our heart and our, our soul will be trusting you. And while you have given us a few insights on the Antichrist, you've given us far more insights on the real Christ. And when you help us, God, to walk in love as a church, loving you and then loving one another. Would you just reveal to us new ways to do that and reveal to us new ways to walk in your love and your mercy and your grace? And may you have full reign over us so that we wouldn't receive a letter like Ephesus. But if we did, and you said to us, you have a complaint against, against us, we would listen because you have our best interests at heart. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to your church. And if you're here today, you've never given your life to the real Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do just that. Today is the day you turn away from your sins and you submit your life to following Jesus Christ from this day forward. And so if you're here today, you'd say, Ed, that's me. I, I want to follow God with my life. I need to ask for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you that today would be the day that you make a conscious decision to follow the real Christ. And that word Christ means Savior or Messiah. That's when you hear Jesus Christ. It's not like his first and last name. Christ is his title. It is his function. He came to save you. He is God in human flesh, and he came to save those that the Father has given him. And you go, Ed, well, how do I know if the Father gave me to him? Respond to the invitation. Respond and say, that's me and my life, and I need to follow him. I want to repent of my sins. Anyone here? God bless you over here. It's a good thing. You guys already over here on this side, you see, the, can you guys stand up and lay hands on these, on these folks here? Is there anyone else? I don't want to miss anyone with movement, but I want you guys to know you're not alone. I know it's a big room with a lot of people, but you're not alone. We got another one right here. So these guys standing together, just let that sense of the hands on you. It's kind of a Christian thing, so you're going to learn. It even might be odd and weird, but it's not because that physical touch is a reminder that you're not physically alone. What's happening in your life right now is in the spiritual realm, but it's lived out in the physical realm. Is there anyone else that's here that would say that's me? That God would just, man, draw you to a place. I pray for you guys on the radio as well. You don't need to be here. You can pray to receive God in your kitchen. kitchen. You can pray to receive Jesus in your car, downstairs on one of the screens. So, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and, and why don't you guys all open your eyes, look to this side and just lay your hands on them by, by distance, just so you can participate, so you know you're a part of the body of Christ. You have a responsibility for new believers. And so you guys that are responding, the Bible says you need to, to, to confess with your mouth the belief you have in your heart. So I'm going to help you do that with this prayer. You could repeat after me. You could talk to God and say something like this. God, I admit that I've sinned against you. <clears throat> And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. 
I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, die for me, and I believe Jesus Christ rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I dedicate my life to following you from this day forward. Help me, God, to turn away from my sins and my sinful past. And I pray this in the authority of Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.